Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book 4.5 of The Dark Tower, The Wind Through the Keyhole, the Stark Blast section. Let's start the show. Stephen King returns to his magnum opus, not with a prequel or a sequel, but with a midquill. Our quartet is on the path of the beam after leaving the Green Palace. Oi is acting strangely, constantly looking back from where they came. But it isn't until the quartet encounters Bix, a 120-year-old ferryman, that Roland realizes that Oi senses a stark blast coming. This storm threatens to freeze them all if they don't find shelter. Following Bix's instructions, the Katet gathers in an old stone meeting hall in an abandoned town along the path. After building a fire using wood scraps from the decaying buildings, Roland settles down to tell a story from the past. Greetings, constant listeners. Want to support the show? Check out our Patreon page to learn how you can access exclusive content. We've set up three patron levels, Apprentice, Gunslinger, and Cotet. Each level provides rewards as a thank you from us to you. Find out more information at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Thanks again for being a loyal listener. Jay, we're into another book and on to the second half of the Dark Tower series at this point. Yeah, very exciting. And this is also the first book that we've covered together that neither one of us has read. That is true. That is true. So it'll be a new experience for us, and hopefully our readers will gain some insight, and hopefully we like this book, and it isn't just uh, 300 pages of, oh my God, I can't believe he added on to his magnum opus with this piece of crap. (laughs) So we like to talk a little bit about the publication history when we get into a new book. And as we mentioned, this is one that was written after the original series was complete. The Grant Limited Edition uh, was published in February 2012. King kept up his agreement with Grant to have them put out the first editions of the Gunslinger books, just as he did with the first one and continued on throughout the series. Uh, And then the Scribner version of this book came out in April of 2012 and was an immediate bestseller. We'll talk a little bit about that when we do our wrap up at the near the end. Um, What's interesting about this book as compared to the others is that the Scribner version, at least the version I'm reading, does not have any illustrations. So the Grant first edition does have illustrations by Jay Lee. Jay Lee is best known for his work with Marvel Comics and Image Comics. He was really famous in the early 90s for doing an X-Men series. Um, He's got a very striking sense of art, and you'll see that not only in his X-Men work, but in he did a Namor the Submariner comic, and he also did some Dark Tower comics later in his career. Um, but my book does not have any illustrations. And, and Jay, I think that the book that you're reading does not have illustrations either. I think we're both reading separate editions. That's right. I'm actually reading the Kindle version, and that doesn't have any illustrations. And you could find the illustrations online for this book if you want to take a look at them. And as I said, they're, they're pretty striking images. He's got a very distinct art style, does Jay Lee. I have looked at them and they are pretty cool. 
So this fits in. It's the eighth novel written, but it's four and a half in the series. And we'll talk about how King is the one who himself labeled this four and a half. Chronological order comes directly after the book that we just finished, Wizard and Glass, sort of within days of that book ending. Uh, But it comes out eight years after the conclusion of this series uh, when book seven originally came out. Um, And so you can see that King, as he said at the end of the last book, where the Dark Tower was his Jupiter, always drawing himself in, that he was drawn back to this series one more time for for this book. Yeah, and I've even heard rumors that he might be writing yet another Dark Tower book. I will gladly read that one when it comes out and judge it harshly. It'll be interesting to see where he fits that in, if it'll be like a 3.5, or if it'll be like a 4.25, if if he keeps putting stuff in between Wizard and Glass and Wolves of the Cala, he might get up to like, oh, this is a 4.8625 version. Uh, he'll, he'll write one that's just like a passage when Roland has just gotten his fingers cut off on the beach and it's just him saying, ow, for about 50 pages. In a delusional haze. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that I noticed in just sort of overall with the publication history is that you get the sense that King really likes spending time with these characters. Like there seems to be, especially in this first section, a joy that comes off the page as we see these characters again. And again, I haven't read books five, six, and seven, so I I don't know what happens or what's going on. But um, even reading book four, where not a lot of time was spent with Eddie and Susanna and Jake and Oi, getting each one of them into this book early on in this first section, and you can see a little bit of each of their character traits play out. It seemed fun to me. Like There seemed to be a, a liveliness on the page. I don't know if you thought that as well, Jay, but I got that sense that King seemed very excited to be writing this book. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's kind of like when you put away like your favorite toys when you're a kid and you, they get stored up in your you know, a parent's attic or something like that. You come home from college 20 years later and you you pull out that box for some reason and you, and you end up spending the afternoon with those toys. And the toys themselves kind of transport you back to that childhood moment and you realize that it's still kind of fun to just spend time with those toys. And I felt like King was in a similar position with these characters. He spent a lot of his time writing and a lot of his life if you he doesn't he didn't spend every year of his career writing these books but i think a lot of there's a lot of time in between these books where he was probably thinking about these characters so every time he came back to the next book it was another time for him to pull out that toy box and play with these characters and so when he finished the series maybe he thought that that was putting away those toys for good but he found a reason either on purpose or accidentally to come back to these characters, and and he really does seem to embrace spending more time with them. And I don't blame him, because they're great characters. They're the biggest part of why I enjoy reading these books. King has developed a world and has populated it with these characters, the main characters of our story especially, that they're just great to get to know and great to spend time with. I don't blame King at all for wanting to spend a little bit more himself. It's interesting where this comes out in King's career. So when he was preparing to write this book, he had actually put a poll up on his website and asked his fans, what would you like to see me write next? And the choices were a sequel to The Shining, which eventually became Dr. Sleep, or a new Dark Tower book, which is the book we're reading now, The Wind Through the Keyhole. 
Um, and it was a very close vote. I think actually the Shining book won, but he ended up writing this book first. Obviously, he wrote both of them. But you can see King is returning to characters like you're saying. So he's returning to the Danny Torrance character from The Shining. He's returning to the Dark Tower characters in this book. In a few years, he'd start writing his Mr. Mercedes book, which is part of a trilogy of books featuring one character, Bill Hodges. So you wonder if King, towards the end of his career, is doing sort of a reflection and saying, hey, if I'm going to write, I'm going to write stuff that's fun to me and things that I'm comfortable with. And the fact that he's wrote, you know, he doesn't write sequels that often. And basically, we have this book, which is a midquill, as we're calling mm-hmm. it, the sequel to The Shining, and then a trilogy, which, you know, he I don't think he's ever written three other books in a series like he did with Mr. Mercedes, which has its own unique thing. Maybe we'll touch it at some point, but just sort of an interesting piece from a writer who did not do that previously in his career. He wasn't known for writing yeah. series. You know, it's not like he's a mystery writer who gets a idea for a character and then runs it through 20 some books. Like he's mm-hmm. not done that. Yeah. I mean, he's done other things where he's made up towns like Derry or Castle Rock, and he's set multiple stories in those. And he's had little little tiny things that kind of connect those stories whether it's the name of a street or a piece of land or i don't know geographic characteristic of the town that sets that makes sure you understand this is the same place or maybe somebody will mention remember that time when the dog went crazy and killed everybody right you know or something like that like it, it, but they're really light and even when he did 112263 he had his character go like that takes place in that's Derry, right? Yep. So yeah, he had his character go back to Derry and he makes some allusions to it in that. And it's not a continuation or a sequel to it in any way, but we do get some loose connections to the town and perhaps even some of the magic or evil that takes place in it has some influence in in that story. So he always does that. And I think especially with the Dark Tower being his his Jupiter, his magnum opus. It's the thing that keeps drawing him back. It has the most gravity in his solar system, right? So everything that he does finds a way to connect back to the Dark Tower. And so here we are. I don't think he could have avoided this. Even if the Dr. Sleep book won the vote, I think he still planned to write this book or couldn't help himself. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's get into the text itself. We've got a, a short forward here. The book itself is dedicated to Robin Firth and the gang at Marvel Comics. So Robin Firth is a longtime Stephen King assistant who helped with a lot of the research and making sure that Stephen King didn't go astray when writing the Dark Tower books. Uh, Robin Firth, I think, is the author of the Concordance for the Dark Tower books. And obviously, the gang at Marvel Comics, it was around this time that Marvel Comics started to adapt the Dark Tower comics, as well as not only adapt, but fill in some of the gaps with some original pieces as well. Right. This is also in the foreword where King himself labels this as book 4.5 and puts it in the timeline between Wizard and Glass and the Wolves of the Kala. And that is why we are reading it in this order per King himself. Yeah. I like how he put it. Like if you're wondering where to, where to shelve this volume, I would put it between books four and five. It's like, I was just like, oh, I finished reading this this wonderful book. Where do I put it in my collection? Here, I'm going to tell you. 
Stephen King, you are not a librarian. You're not a cataloger. You do not tell me how to shelve my books. I will do it in whatever way I see fit. As long as it's the Dewey Decimal System. So one of the things you noticed, Jay, was like he has done in his other books, he has summarized what has happened previously up to this point. Previously on The Dark Tower. King starts off the, the forward with saying, like, if you're new to the Dark Tower series, let me catch you up. Now, this kind of doesn't make sense, like, who would start with this book? But nevertheless, he gives us this recap, and maybe he's thinking, so it's been eight years, possibly, since you've read a Dark Tower book. Let me refresh your memory at the least, and then set the stage for where this book takes place in that timeline. And I think that for the first time in now, this is the fifth book we're talking about. The three books that, you know, I guess the three sequels that we've read. He's done a pretty lousy job of summarizing what's going on. At this, this time, he really does a good job. He tells us what Midworld is, how it relates to our world. He tells us what a cartet is, who's in the cartet. He talks about what a Billy Bumbler is. In just one page of his text, you really get a good sense of what's going on here. I was just impressed at how well he was able to summarize a very complex story and a set of characters and a world in which they are acting. I was kind of surprised at how well he did it considering how poorly he had done it in the previous books. Most importantly, he did it succinctly. Yes. It's like all in one page. So after we get to the foreword, we immediately jump into the story itself. And this book, unlike the previous few books, and unlike the ones that will follow, is relatively short. Jay, I was happy to pick this up, and as I'm reading it in bed at night, it actually it's actually something I can hold up with one hand if necessary. And if you fall asleep and it lands on your head, it doesn't knock you unconscious? Right, exactly. We jump right into the story itself, which Roland is still dealing with the immediate after effects of what happened in Wizard and Glass, and that book ended with the traumatic recollection of the matricide that he committed. And we've talked about that previously and whether or not that was as dramatic as we thought it was, but that's really what Roland is dealing with in these pages as we begin the story. Right. And even in the, the foreword, King addresses the reader directly by saying that Roland has lived his life under a terrible curse and that this curse was caused by killing his own mother. And I thought it was an interesting way of framing this because First of all, I think that just by witnessing the events of the end of uh, Wizard and Glass, I don't know that Roland is, he's certainly not responsible for killing his mother. He was tricked. It wasn't like he set out to kill her. He didn't decide he hated his mother and wanted her dead. None of those things are true. So this kind of assumes or assigns blame to Roland that I don't think really is there. And then it adds to that by saying that act has cursed his life. And I don't know that that's necessarily true either. So it's interesting that King just calls this out. It's almost like he's returning to the story of Gabrielle Deschain after all this time. And it just makes me wonder, like, did he think there wasn't enough substance about Gabrielle for the audience to really care about her fate? Like, like you and I discussed in a previous episode, we really cared about Susan Delgado because she was 90% of the volume of Wizard and Glass. And she had a tragic story and a tragic end. Then suddenly, like just as almost an afterthought, Roland gets tricked into killing his mother by accident. And that's supposed to 
put Roland's life under a curse and, you know, destroy him mentally and have all this bad effect. And it's all around the loss of this character who we don't know well enough to care about. So King's sort of like, maybe he's almost hanging a lantern on that. Like, let's spend some time talking about the death of Gabrielle and I'll tell you how Roland feels about that. And I'll tell you how that impacts his life so that we can just be straight on that and move forward with the fact that Roland is living his life under a terrible curse. What are your thoughts on that? My thoughts are very much the same, Jay. Those first three and a half, three and three quarters book when it's Gabrielle's not given much screen time at all and not shown as something that has affected Roland's life much that we can see. Um, even in the first few books, we do get hints that there was an important person named Susan Delgado in his life. Her name is dropped yeah. in those first three books. We get one or two scenes with Gabrielle, and it's never she is weighing on his life in some way. If anything, the curses that we see are the curse of the Dark Tower itself, that he is obsessed yep. with it. I mean, that's clear from book one, chapter one, and that because of his obsession with the tower, he has thrown his friends and family and everyone he has loved aside, and that is his more of his curse. Gabrielle is obviously one of those, but in no way is she pointed out as being the curse of his life. Or the reason for the curse. The curse is the tower, and as a result of that curse of the tower, his family and friends have gone by the wayside. That's really the tragedy of Jake, right? When Jake mm -hmm. dies in book one, the tragedy is his obsession with the tower has made him let this young boy fall to his death. It's not the curse of his mother has let this him drop this young boy to his death. So King can retrofit this story to make it seem that way. And okay, I'll buy into it for the rest of this book. If that's what he wants me to believe, that's what I'll believe. But if I had my way, it would not be King. It, it would not be this way of reading it. But And there's also the aspect of, and I say this without any spoilers, so fear not, uh, listeners. King wrote this story and had this thought and wrote this forward after he finished the overall arc of the Dark Tower series. So maybe King sees it a different way or grew to see it a different way by the time he got to the end of the story. But we're looking at it at the point where we just finished Wizard and Glass. And up to that point, I don't know that this jibes with what we know so far. And so it's possible that once we see what, what comes next, it'll make more sense to have this perspective. But we're reading King's forward as though none of that stuff has happened. True. So that could be a reason for it. I want to mention the other characters here too, Jade, just sure. really quick, because we are talking about how the effects of the Green Palace, what it what it's had on Roland, and obviously he's looking at this quest in a different light, and the Wizard and Glass book ended with the Cotet sort of being all in on the tower, and we are one, and we are a Cotet, and and moving forward. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting to me that this book starts off with Jake and Oi moving away from the rest of the Cotet. So as they're walking along this path, Jake and Oi have gone quite a far ahead way from the rest of the group. And there's some questions about whether or not that's okay or not. And they're like, yeah, sure, let him go off on his own. Um, so it seems like it's affected Jake in some way that he's sort of, I don't know if he feels more comfortable in his own power that, hey, I can go off on my own here and I can go explore ahead of it and I feel safe or confident or if it's some other reason. But I thought that that was interesting. 
obviously the relationship between Susanna and Eddie seems still very, very strong. They don't seem to be immediately changed in any way by what happened at the Green Palace, other than just sort of cautious and wary about what's going to happen going forward. I don't know if you have any thoughts on either of that character explanation. Well, I agree with what you said about Eddie and Susanna. They they do seem to be just as close as ever. I'm not personally that concerned about Jake's willingness to be separate from the rest of the quartet. I've always taken the view that's just a part of his growth. He's maturing. You know, Roland has said on a number of occasions, despite whatever his age might be chronologically, he has he's a gunslinger and he has to be self-sufficient and he has to be able to survive on his own. So if he chooses to exercise that freedom, to exercise that individual if he chooses to be more individual from the group, I don't think it's him growing apart from the group. I just think it's him growing up. And I think that part of that is just how human beings mature. There's a point where every kid goes from being completely dependent upon their immediate family to figuring out how to be self-sufficient. And part of that is proving to themselves and those around them that they can be self-sufficient by forcing self-sufficiency in a way by rejecting the things that their parents tell them to do, or just going off and rebelling in some way, whether it's in mild or, or major ways, they're doing it essentially just to force their own identity on the world to find it in their search for their own identity. And once they get past that point, then they realize, well, maybe my identity is just being part of this group again, and that's fine. And that's probably where Jake is. We see that sort of brought to life towards the end when the storm actually comes through the Stark Blast, and Oi is somewhat mesmerized by it, and he's out in the town, and everybody else has been gathering supplies so that they can take shelter. And once they realize Oi's out there, Jake goes running after him to rescue Oi, and then Eddie wants to follow after Jake, and Roland says no to, to Eddie. He's like, no, Oi is Jake's responsibility. And Jake has made a choice to go out there. Your responsibility is to take care of yourself, get in. And when they come to a little bit of a fight about that, at the end, Roland says, Jake is a boy no more. Right. He has responsibilities. He needs to grow up. And this is one of those things. It's a learning moment. And it's not Roland telling Jake how to act. It's letting Jake act out and dealing with whatever the consequences are. Yep. However, at the same time, what's interesting is at the beginning of this in part one, and there's all this talk of, you know, Jake's a gunslinger, and I think he actually says Suzanne is a formidable gunslinger in her own right, and obviously we think Eddie is a gunslinger, but they're not quite as observant as Roland. Roland still notices that as they're going down the path, that they're being spied on and observed by people in the weeds and throughout, and he does not bring that up to them. He doesn't teach them like, hey, look over there, we're getting spied on. He does... We, we're not able to forget that Roland is a different caliber of gunslinger than the rest of this content. I think there are two aspects to that. One is that Roland is always presented to us as being supernaturally good at everything that he does. Like Even when he's the 14-year-old version of himself and he, when we're comparing him to his fellow gunslinger companions like Cuthbert and, and Elaine, Roland's always the one who's the fastest with the guns or that has the sharpest eyes or things like that. He's not necessarily, he doesn't have every strength is better than them, but 
the ones that seem to be most important to being a gunslinger, like vision and hearing and being in marksmanship and things like that, Roland's always the best. Yes. I think the other aspect of it is that just like when they were coming upon River Crossing, there were a lot of people who Roland could see spying on them from hidden places and the rest of the group didn't notice them. Now, they were much closer to being novice gunslingers than they are here. But as we mentioned in a previous episode, Eddie and Susanna and Jake, they've only been in Roland's world for uh, less than half a year at this point. Yeah, like four months, right? So, whatever Roland has imparted to them knowledge-wise and gunslinger skills, they're still learning. And I think Roland can quickly assess the people spying on them from the crevices and the hidden spaces in this little town, they're not a threat. This is a way for me to maybe let them learn, a way for me to continue to teach them to become better gunslingers. It's like, oh yeah, I've been uh, noticing that for like the last 10 minutes. You guys still haven't picked up on there's potentially a threat. Let's learn with that. You know, I think he's he's choosing his battles and he's also giving them moments to to mess up and learn from their mistakes. Sure. It sort of comes around full circle because when they finally get to the crossing of the river where they might meet Bix, the ferryman, it's Bix who's able to tell Roland, oh, good thing you have a Billy Bumbler. That's how you know that there's a Stark Blast coming. And Roland's like, oh yeah, Stark Blast. I should have known that. I totally forgot that Billy Bumblers noticed that. And you're like, oh yeah, Roland might be the best barksman. He might have great vision and he might be a great acuity at a number of things, but he's not always the sharpest tool in the shed, is he? He even acknowledges sometimes the uh, the gears move slowly when it comes to thinking things through, but and I don't know. He Sometimes he's very quick with his thoughts, but that was a little sovereign of the plot, I thought, too. Let me explain to you what a Stark Blast is and get it set up and have it detailed by Bix, the 120-year-old riverman. Yeah, and have Oi mysteriously uh, doing a Billy Bumbler dance and not have anybody be able to explain it until Roland suddenly has his revelation. I'll allow it. So once they're warned about the Stark Blast, the crew rushes to this town. They set up in the shelter house that exists in the town, the only thing made of stone. And we get a number of references as, as we start to begin a story within the story. Yes. This story itself, from a meta level, you know, it's already book 4.5. So we're already told that this is a story that's within the bigger story of the Dark Tower because it's between books four and books five. But within yeah. this, we're going to get at least a couple of stories. And the first one is Roland is going to tell the story of what happens, what happened to him in his youth after he got back from Gilead. But there's a little bit of hints that we're going to get more stories to come. And early on in this chapter, Roland mentions a children's book from his past called the Thraken and the Dragon, and Thraken being another name for Billy Bumbler, correct? That's right. We we hear Thraken the first time from Bix, because that's what Bix calls him, and that, apparently that's the, the old name for Billy Bumblers is Thrakens. And I thought that the Thraken and the Dragon sounds like a fascinating children's book. I want to know when King's going to release that under a pseudonym. <laughs> it would be a perfect companion piece to Charlie the Choo Choo. Spooky stories to read your kids. One's about a scary train and the other one's about how a Billy Bumbler fights a dragon, I guess. 
there's going to be a lot of disappointed Dark Tower fans if he said that there's a, a new Dark Tower book coming out and it's going to be the Thraken and the Dragon. <laughs> 32 pages. King's going to whip it off one morning before uh, he logs on to Twitter and then- The first 29 pages are just a Billy Bumbler spinning around in circles. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You mentioned that this is like a story within a story, and depending on at what level you start observing this Russian nesting doll of a of a structure that King has established, that yes, first we have the overarching Dark Tower series, and then this is a story within that 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 is called the Wind Through the Keyhole, and then in that we've got this story of Roland and the Cotet avoiding this Stark Blast storm. And then once they're avoiding the storm, Roland says, oh, while we're passing the time, because a great line in, in this section of the book is when Roland says, there's nothing like stories on a windy night when folks have found a warm place in a cold world. So he's going to hunker down and tell them a story. Yep. So then there's another story within this story. And it just keeps nesting within you know stories within stories within stories. And I just think it's an interesting construct here and fun to just see how many levels down this nesting doll goes and the great part about the story is that king as narrator says even the dark tower itself was forgotten for a bit as roland tells this story and just shows how the power of story can take you out of anything that might be your worries and concerns so you know even though they're all obsessed with the dark tower and they're constantly thinking about it and their whole reason for being at this point is to seek out the Dark Tower. They're able to forget it when they're in this setting, when they've got a good storyteller where who's going to tell an interesting story. Yeah, the, the fact that this story can distract them for a moment from even the, the tower itself is pretty, says a lot about the power of stories. Yes. And it's also great in the moment to just take everybody's mind off the fact that they might die of the cold or something from the storm if if the roof blows off of this place where they've they've run for shelter be killed by the storm you know so it's like ah in the meantime let's listen to a fun story well jay are you out there jay i'm here you know what time it is is it time for fun stuff it is time for fun stuff jay Fantastic. Just like there's nothing like stories on a windy night when folks have found a warm place in a cold world, there's nothing like fun stuff during a podcast when people have earbuds in their ears and they're listening to two men talk about a book series. That's right. I'll start us off. One of the things that I thought was fun when Susanna is rooting around in the, the chimney to try to get the flu open and a whole bunch of ash comes down and lands on her face and and it gets in her mouth and it's all over. And of course, this sets her off on a, a rant of cursing that just has Jake in complete awe. <laughs> and my favorite part of that is when she says, you cock-knocking motherfucker. And she turns to Jake and realizes that maybe she's gone a little too far. And Jake says that, no, no, no. I have the deepest respect for your skill with words. And so do I, Jake. So do I. In addition to Old words like cock-knocking motherfucker that we're all familiar with, Stephen King introduces us to some new words in the Dark Tower mythos. Among those Thraken, which we already mentioned, Antet, Shum, which is a form of shame, Bright, which is a type of talent, as in a Billy Bumbler's Bright is to be able to sense Stark Blasts. Um, Stark Blast, which 
maybe I saw on Twitter somebody ask, is that a Song of Ice and Fire reference? You know, ice coming down and it's Stark, like the Starks from Game of Thrones? Probably not, but... It's a bit of a stretch, but... Interesting to think about. Yeah. Limbits, which are Stephen King's made-up temperature gauge, like Fahrenheit yes. or Celsius, they mention in Limbits. And Bin Rusties, which are another name for a type of bird that is going to be frozen and killed in the Stark Blast. So we've talked before about the language of the Dark Tower. It seems like within these first few pages, we get dumped a lot of made-up words to try to add to the ambiance of the story. I wonder uh, what absolute zero is in Limbits. 214 Limbits. And we've talked before about how this stuff really doesn't work and... It can sometimes add to the sense of story, like the Throcken is sort of cool and bright is a very evocative phrase. Like we all have brights within us and for Billy Bumblers, it's this, but you know, the Limbits thing, it's like, eh, can you just say it's going to be really cold? It's going to be below freezing. Like, or just say degrees because they have lots of words that are exactly the same as our words. Right. Or, or King doesn't bother to transmogrify their uh or whatever fantasy story eyes these words into something nonsensical yeah sometimes with science fiction and fantasy you can go a little bit too far you know like let's just pretend everybody has a universal translator and we're all speaking the same language once you start yep. introducing these weird words and sometimes it can take you out of the story as opposed to put you deeper in it bright i think puts you back into the story limbits takes you out i agree and I imagine that some of this comes from the, the world building that King has had, now had seven books to do. And he, this is his eighth book. So he's like, well, I'm going to use all of that, that world that I built in, in seven books and then add to it some more. And we haven't encountered that. So like, it makes me wonder if he wrote book one with words like Limbits and Bin Rusties and Stark Blast, like, would it be even more incomprehensible? Like a lot of readers struggle with book one for its style and its pacing and things like that. But if you also made it chock full of nonsense fantasy words, I think it would just be like, everyone just be like, nope out of that after like 20 pages. Absolutely. No one would read that book. There's something that I thought was pretty fun, which was when Eddie's reflecting on whether or not Roland could get like tetanus infection from a rusty nail. And then he says, nah, Roland's blood would kill any germ. And then I was like, what are you talking about, Eddie? You were there when he was dying of an infection caused by a lobstrosity bite. Like, did Eddie forget about that from four months ago? Did King forget about writing an entire book about that? There was a reason he needed Aston and he, ne he needed... Keflex so that he could survive poison in his blood. Because in fact, his blood cannot kill any germ. It very specifically could not kill the germ that was within the lobstrosity's bite. A little bit of a miss there. Maybe Eddie's the one who's not too swift. The only reason you met this guy is because he was sick and he needed medicine. It was a defining moment in your life. It was the meat cute of your life. That's right. And and we talked at length in when we covered book two about how all of the people that Roland drew were people that could help him in that moment. And in Eddie's case, it was because he needed Keflex to cure his blood poisoning. Hmm. Turns out that a germ, in fact, was the entire reason for book two. But never mind. Roland's blood would kill any germ. He's so tough. He's such a tough guy. So Bix tells an interesting story about how 
he goes to an underground place to find some supplies that's a few miles away from his ferry shack. And what is interesting about this place in my, the, the one thing I picked up was that he talks about this horrible music that he hears coming from overhead that sort of grinds the teeth and gives you a headache. And I was just amazed to find out that even though the world has moved on, it still has Muzak. As somebody who had worked in retail jobs for a long time, I know that pain. Yes, so do I. I guess Muzak never dies. Muzak and roaches. Yeah, so the the last uh, fun stuff thing that I had was King reuses his line, but adds a little bit to it that I think makes it better, which is, time was a face on the water, and it did nothing but flow. And yeah, he's reusing his line, but it's a really good line, so I'm okay with that. Just wanted to, I guess, appreciate his writing. Yeah. That's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes, and you could be featured on a future show. Next episode, join us as we cover Book 4.5 of The Dark Tower, The Wind Through the Keyhole, The Skin Man, Part 1. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening.